I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Welcome to Nothing Impossible on St. Louis's News Radio, KMOX. All right, welcome in. It's Michael Calhoun and Travis Sheridan. Welcome to our show about local innovation. We talk with entrepreneurs. We check out the latest tech in St. Louis. We talk about people who are doing things uh, big, bad, awesome, cool, because it, you know, it's not impossible. And where are people doing these things in St. Louis? It's not just in the Cortex District. It's not just downtown. Uh, you know, we, we always we have to remember the fact that uh, in St. Charles, they have the old post office that they have rehabbed. And if you go up and down Cherokee Street, there's a lot of artisans and entrepreneurs working out of places like Nebula. Uh, and you go to North St. Louis and you have a lot of uh, small businesses and entrepreneurs. I mean, this is an entrepreneurial community. Yeah, there's the speaking of like our our. Um industries that we own in St. Louis, Plant Science Innovation District in Creve Core. What other city has a innovation district that is that specific in terms of its scope and its industry? I don't I think we will see more communities going that route. I would say St. Louis has a head start as it relates to that. Uh, everybody else wants to be broad or the Silicon Valley of in, you know, insert blank. Uh, St. Louis is really doubling down on some niche industries, geospatial Right. Another mm. place uh, where we have a long history, but I don't think it's ever been leveraged like it's being leveraged now. And that's an area of the region, North St. Louis, where they're building the new NGA headquarters. It's going to physically change. Uh, the hope is that there'll be more amenities for the residents there to use as well, more retail and that sort of thing. And speaking of transformations, we talk about Cortex a lot in the context of today with the cranes and the glass and the people. But Don Rubin, who's a Cortex board member, we sat there, we looked out at the parking lot as I interviewed him. We talked about the changes that he's seen, especially as one of the biggest parking lots is about to be replaced. Michael, there's so much momentum going on in this neighborhood. It's very exciting for us at BioSTL to be in the middle of it, have our startups, our labs, our team all in the middle of the Cortex District where we're surrounded by not just existing buildings and uh, that have startups, that have a new hotel, academic buildings, but there's a lot more on the drawing board that's coming, residential, restaurants, more research buildings uh, that Washington University are investing in. St. Louis University is doing a lot in the district. Uh, it really is a place where we see a convergence of uh, startups and university activity and corporate activity all coming together. The synergies that are possible when you bring these folks together um, is really unpredictable and, and, and exciting for the future of the region. 
And we also wanted to talk to Don about how the experience within Cortex is changing, right? It's, uh, I know there's been arguments that it's a business park, but creating uh, a residential offering along with the restaurants turns it more from the eight-hour world into a work-play-live world. We're currently looking at some nice new buildings. 18 years ago, when we helped to launch Cortex, these very same blocks that we're looking at were filled with rusty chain link fences, abandoned lots, boarded up buildings. The transformation has been truly impressive. And as each month goes by, we're seeing more and more people on the street, more to do, more restaurants, more activities, food trucks, uh, just a lot more excitement uh, and much more of a community that is being created here in the midtown of St. Louis. All right, so that parking lot we talked about, it's right behind the Cortex One building, the original Cortex building, the OG Cortex (laughs) structure. It's going to be replaced by apartments. And some might question, well, why do we need apartments in the middle of an office district? The successful innovation hubs around the world are really mixed use. And they are 24-7 places where people live, work, play, eat, spend time. Uh, It's nice to have options for the entrepreneurs, the people who work in startups, to live nearby. It's great to have affordable places for them to to live nearby, Um, to have retail, to have uh, food, restaurants. All these things come together uh, to create a real community. And uh, uh, this will never be, I think, uh, uh, predominantly a residential neighborhood, but it's nice to have residential in the mix, along with the startups, the corporate activity, the university activity. It's part of a complete picture. And that picture becomes even more complete when you think of things like the hotel going in, right? We're going to have a met- we have a Metrolink stop that's already there. People can land at the airport, Metrolink down to Cortex, go to an event at the hotel, stay at the hotel. It's it's all becoming together. I was just hosting a group from the UK uh, yesterday and walking around the district and showing them our our labs and and they're truly impressed. They came from Cambridge, England. They have nothing like this district there. They obviously have a lot of intellectual activity happening and they're working on new innovations and startups, but they would love to have an innovation community like this. And they love to see the hotel going up. They love to see all the different elements together. Um, And as you say, you know, having a hotel gives in the future a, a place for visitors like that to stay right in within walking distance of the activity. But how do you get there? Parking is one of the challenges that come with success in a district like this. Uh, Of course, we St. Louisans are spoiled in in living in our cars and parking uh, 12 feet from where we go to work. and there is some of that opportunity in Cortex, but you know the the there are parking garage a new parking garage went up recently. Um, the Metro Link stops right here in the heart of Cortex. There are lots of transportation options, uh, parking options. Uh, but as we grow and as new uh, construction continues, parking will continue to be a challenge. But it's a challenge that I'm confident that the Cortex team and and the community will will meet and uh, will make sure that uh, uh, that that is an amenity that's available in the district. And so a lot of momentum at Cortex, and we're going to keep that momentum going as we continue the show. We're going to talk about uh, Indianapolis and what they have learned when they have visited St. Louis. And uh, we have to be serious here. We're going to talk a little bit about the coronavirus and uh, what innovations might be uh, happening there so we can all be safe. Stick around. More Nothing Impossible right after this. (laughs) 
Welcome back to Nothing Impossible on St. Louis's News Radio, KMOX. Welcome in, Michael Calhoun and Travis Sheridan. And we're going to talk tech innovation, not just in St. Louis, but across the region. You know, so often we hear about how St. Louisans go to other cities to get some ideas on what we can do to jumpstart the region here. But what's really cool is this next story is about another region coming to St. Louis to take good lessons away from here. I, I like this idea of innovation tourism, right? Like uh, some <laughs> people like some people are foodies. Some people like amusement parks and roller coasters. But there is a, a bandwidth of people. I will put myself in that category that really love checking out other innovation districts. I would like a trip that combines all three of those, to be honest. (laughs) Well, let's find out if that's what happened for the folks from Indianapolis who came to St. Louis. Joining us now is Bob Coy, the president and CEO of 16 Tech Community Corporation. Thank you for joining us, Bob. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So first of all, what is 16 Tech? Well, 16 Tech is an innovation district. Um... Um, on 50 acres in downtown Indianapolis that is immediately adjacent to the IU School of Medicine and the campus of Indiana University, uh, Purdue University. And um, we are building out an innovation district that is focused on the life sciences, tech, and advanced engineering sectors um, that will become a home to um, research institutions, startups, innovation groups from established corporations. Um, uh, And uh, we were very interested in learning about Cortex because Cortex um, and and Bio St. Louis or Bio STL as well um, have been at this much longer than we have. And um, there's much that we can learn. You know, it's interesting, Bob. Uh, we've had, I know there's been groups from St. Louis that have gone up to Indianapolis and looked at your parks and trailway systems uh, and uh, trying to emulate some of the things that Indianapolis has, has done well. It's nice to have this symbiotic relationship where different regions can grow together. What are some of the things that you saw in St. Louis that, that sparked your interest? Well, um, So for me, it was a little bit of a homecoming because I lived in St. Louis from uh, January um, 2002 through just about the end of 2005. And at that time, I was um, head of um, entrepreneurial development for the St. Louis RCGA and also the head of economic development for the RCGA and worked very closely with, um, you know, what is now Bio St. Louis, um, which was, as you know, organized and founded by um, Dr. Danforth. And what was fascinating for me personally um, was to um, return to St. Louis. I I moved to Cincinnati in 2005 to run a seed fund, which I called Cincy Tech, which I did for 12 years. And now to return to St. Louis and to see how the vision of Dr. Danforth and others in the community, you know, has been realized, um, not just at the physical place, which is Cortex, which is in itself is very impressive as a platform and as a place, um, but also the type of um, the, the type of ecosystem which has evolved um, and which has really been driven to a great extent by BioSTL and Don Rubin, you know, focused on support for entrepreneurship, um, uh, shared lab space for life science companies, capital formation. Um, talent, um, and even even uh, global STL, which is aggregating the buying power of the um, St. Louis 
uh, large St. Louis companies um, to help them solve their innovation problems by attracting startups from around the world um, to St. Louis. I mean, it was just all very, very impressive. And uh, our whole team was impressed. Uh, Joining me on the trip were the leadership of Indiana University, um, who are part of our innovation district, um, all of the senior executives, um, almost all of the senior executives from the university were on the trip. So it was a learning experience for, for us all and was really inspiring. And I think it has re-energized our commitment to building out our innovation district. None of these things are cookie cutters, uh, but there are best practices. Tell us a little bit about 16 Tech and how long that's been in development and what the, the vision is for it. Well, 16 Tech is a, it, it's a little bit like Cortex in this respect. Um, Cortex got started in 2001, right? Mm-hmm. And didn't really take off until 2010. Uh, so it's, Cortex has been uh, a 20-year overnight success. And our um, innovation district in Indianapolis was first sort of conceived of as a concept um, in the 90s. Um, but um, it wasn't really until 2015 when the business community, um, through an organization here known as the Central Indiana Corporate Partnership, which represents the CEOs of the major corporations uh, in uh, Indianapolis, um, decided that um, we needed an, that they needed an innovation district um, in Indianapolis uh, as a talent magnet for the region. Uh, and as a as an economic engine for the region, so our corporation was formed as a not for profit in 2015, um, really 2016, and um, we were successful in um, getting support from the city of Indianapolis um, in the form of tax increment financing, uh, which I know Cortex has uh, also received from the city of St. Louis. So we have. $55 million of tax increment financing to uh, invest in infrastructure um, necessary to um, create sites that could be developed uh, on this 50 acres. And then um, we received a $38 million grant from the, the Lilly Endowment, which is a $15 billion, $15 billion uh, endowment in Indianapolis, um, which is a tremendous asset. It's um, uh, and it invests in Indiana and Indianapolis primary, primarily. So we have a $38 million grant from the Lilly Endowment for further public infrastructure, public art, and um, to build a new bridge um, across what is known as Fall Creek, um, which will connect directly to the IU School of Medicine's medical campus. And, and the whole point is to you know, create connectivity and ease for the flow of people and ideas back and forth. So, um, uh, so we, um, our first building is um, is opening in uh, June of this year. Um, it's a hundred and twenty thousand square foot office lab building that will be the home of the uh, Indiana Biosciences Research Institute. Um, the IU School of Medicine is taking a floor and populating it with um, companies and researchers in the regenerative medicine area. And then the Central Indiana Corporate Partnership, which is a little bit like BioSTL um, mm-hmm. in that um, it is focusing on developing a, a strong ecosystem in tech, life sciences, advanced engineering, talent, 
advanced energy systems. Um, and it will take the half of the fourth and all of the fifth floor. And then um, at the end of last year, we closed on $23 million that we raised um, to convert an old building um, um, into an innovation hub um, that will have flexible office space, um, incubators. It will have a maker space and an artisan market, like a French market concept, about 104,000 square feet, um, that will play a role that's similar to the role that the building that CIC is in at Cortex. Um, where they have the um, 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 the venture cafe events every Thursday, which I'm sure you all have been to. Um, so that building will open in January. Um, we're we're also building it out as a live work play um, area. So um, we'll have about 750 apartment units within the district. We'll have retail as well as about 3 million square feet of office and lab space um, when it is fully built out. We're talking with Bob Coy, who's the president and CEO of 16 Tech in Indianapolis. And Bob, as someone who's uh, coming from a, a Midwestern neighbor of St. Louis who has the outside perspective, but you're also familiar because you said you lived here uh, during the early 2000s. What do you see beyond the innovation district, beyond the confines of Cortex? What about the St. Louis region, whether it's the community, the entrepreneurs, the large companies we have here, the government structures, the investment organizations, the venture cafes? What do you think is it that about the St. Louis region that has really allowed Cortex to happen? Well, I think um, what has really impressed me um, is the the growth in the Central West End um, over to 64, it's 64, right? Where Cortex, 6440, yep. Cortex on the one side. Yeah, 6440. Um, up to um, Clayton through the, that, uh, it, it, over to the Missouri Botanical Garden, around St. Louis University. That whole area, it just seems to me is booming. Um, and it's really exciting uh, to see it. So I think that all of these pieces working together um, is what is making um, that whole area so exciting. It's, it, you, you just have all of the ingredients, it seems to me, with the world-class universities, the Forest Park, um, the great housing structure that you have in these neighborhoods, these old homes that are being repurposed, re, you know, refurbished, um, the museums. Um, it, it's, it, it's the complete package, in my opinion. And I think all of this is now feeding on itself and feeding on it's not it's 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 all mutually reinforcing and causing that whole area to, you know, grow in and in, in really exciting and impressive ways. Well, Bob, you, you mentioned uh, Global STL, which is part of the Bio STL offering. And I think about these innovation districts and multiple cities that are starting to grow, emerge and really find their footing. And a lot of their success comes from linking or partnerships or connections to other innovation districts. If I think about Venture Cafe that you mentioned, uh, it exists in about 11 cities around the world. And so people can drop into a city and experience Venture Cafe uh, and it feels uh, familiar to them. What is Indianapolis doing to connect its uh, innovation district to other innovation districts? Well, we are um, really just getting started. I mean, we—I uh, have to make that emphasize that point at this point. We, we are, um, we are where Cortex was in maybe 2008, 
maybe 2009. So we're, we're just laying the groundwork, preparing the sites, getting the buildings up, building the stage, so to speak. Um, and now what we need to do with the stage is to pull together all of the actors um, in the innovation ecosystem that really will make the place exciting. So um, as we've done that and as we're doing that, um, I've been interacting really with a, with a, a, a small network of innovation districts um, in Philadelphia, where I've, I also lived in the Philadelphia area early in my career. There's a fantastic innovation district there called um, University um, City, which is adjacent to the University of Pennsylvania and Drexel University. So I've learned a lot from them. Um, I've been a friend of Don Rubens, who's the CEO of BioSTL, since I lived in um, St. Louis, and he and I have kept in touch over the the years and now well now the decades. So he's been following what we've been doing, and I've been following what he's been doing. Um, I've learned from Dennis Lauer, the CEO of Cortex. Um, um, there's a, an innovation district in the state of Delaware. So it's just a small, uh, small group of us. Um, and we're, I'm at this point picking their brains because they're further ahead than we are. We hope to catch up quickly. But um, so I'm, it's, it's nice to have a network of folks who you can learn from. Um, there's also a, a global uh, innovation district association that's being formed that's based in Switzerland. Um, and um, uh, we're likely to join that organization, uh, which I think is pretty exciting because, as you know, the innovation district concept is, is now global. Um, there have been well over 100 identified around the world, almost almost all in urban areas, Um uh, adjacent to anchor institutions like our Indianapolis School of Medicine and your Washington University and St. Louis University. So it's really important to be connected um, for certain. And, and one of the things that we want to do um, for the companies that locate there is also enable them to be globally connected. You mentioned Venture Cafe and um, its, its sites around the country that members can drop in on wherever they're at, wherever they're, whenever they're in those towns. Um, and we want to have the same connectivity for not only our startups, but our established corporations. So, um, so that's what, that's one reason why we were so interested also in learning about global STL because of um, the really impressive work that's being done um, to source innovation from around the world to solve the problems of, um, some of the local companies um, in St. Louis. Bob Coy, president and CEO of 16 Tech in Indianapolis. Thank you for sharing your story about what you're doing there, and thanks for sharing your observations about St. Louis, too. We appreciate it. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Keep up the good work over there. You as well. Thank you for joining us. And, folks, we'll be right back with more Nothing Impossible right after this. Welcome back to Nothing Impossible on St. Louis's News Radio, KMOX. As we continue along with our conversation about local tech and innovation, research and development, let's stick with Cortex and go to a startup that's inside of the new Biogenerator building as we talk about coronavirus, COVID-19 as it's also known, uh, and the race to develop a vaccine for it. There is a St. Louis startup that's at the forefront of developing a new way to create bacterial vaccines so that if i understand this correctly it 
uh, the process can be reduced and they can get a vaccine to market faster, right? Yeah, let's get the details from Christian Harding, who's the co-founder and CEO of Vax New Mo. So first of all, what's your startup and what's the importance of vaccines today? Yeah, so we're um, a research and development company uh, that focuses on vaccine development. Um, but let's take a minute real quick to just talk about vaccines because there's lots of different types of flavors of vaccines. Most people are probably um, uh, familiar with the flu shot or flu vaccines, um, but those target viruses, the influenza virus. There's also lots of vaccines that target bacteria, different type of microorganism, and we're developing vaccines against bacterial pathogens or bacterial threats. Um, these vaccines can come also in different flavors, subunits, um, whole bacteria that are inactivated, and we make a specific type of vaccine called a conjugate vaccine. And it consists of two very essential parts. So one is a polysaccharide or the sugary coating of the bacteria. It's commonly referred to as the capsule, kind of protects the bacteria from our immune system, and it gives them a unique signature, like a fingerprint. Um, those are great in theory, vaccine candidates, but there's a problem. If you purify those polysaccharides and you use those alone as a vaccine, they don't generate an immune response and they do nothing for children. So that's, that's a big problem. We have this great fingerprint, but you can't use it as a vaccine alone. However, if you take that polysaccharide and you link it to a carrier protein or a protein, um, they have to be covalently or physically linked, that forms a conjugate vaccine because the protein and polysaccharide conjugated together. These are amazing. They've been around for 40 years, and they, the reason they're so powerful is because they work in children, our most vulnerable patient population, infants. So I have a five-month-old daughter. She's getting conjugate vaccines right now from Pfizer, Prevnar 13. Um, and these vaccines are great, but they're very complex to manufacture. Um, they conventionally require a lot of chemistry and semi-synthetic chemistry to purify the polysaccharide, purify the protein, and then you have to link them together. There's a lot of release controls. It's very expensive. Um, and this is really limited conjugate vaccine production to actually four companies. Four companies control 85% of the global market. Um, we are trying to disrupt that. We actually make conjugate vaccines, but we don't use the conventional chemistries. We take a biological approach. So we um, have engineered the lab-safe bacteria called E. coli. It's in everyone's gut. Um, scientists have been playing with E. coli for over 100 years. It's the workhorse of all the microbiology labs. What we've done is turned E. coli into our conjugate vaccine-producing factory. So essentially, it's a one-pot reaction where E. coli is going to make that polysaccharide, that fingerprint of a certain bacteria like Streptococcus pneumoniae. It's going to make that carrier protein at the same time. And then where Vaxnumo comes in is we have a set of proprietary, we call them conjugating enzymes, and they link the polysaccharide to the protein. So we've replaced the chemistry that is required to link these two together, and we have an enzyme, an enzymatic-driven approach. So it's one pot, one step, and what that results in is a more streamlined manufacturing process. It can do things sometimes that chemistry can't because it, it doesn't disrupt the fingerprint, the structure of these polysaccharides. It's very, very important because if you change the way the polysaccharide looks, you could change the immune response to the certain, you could target a different bacteria. So this results in a very well-defined product. Um, so we're using this biological approach to manufacture conjugate vaccines. So this is, it sounds like it goes faster, better product, uh, more effective maybe in children, or is this really produced for those infections that 
the outbreak isn't that large. And so there's not a you know, supply and demand issue. It is all of the above. And I want to be very careful, right? Because what Pfizer, Merck, you know, GSK, what they're doing, what they're making are premium products that are proven to work, right? So there is an opportunity, though, socioeconomic opportunity to make um, improvements on existing vaccines. So as an example, um, the world's most famous vaccine right now is called Prevnar 13. It's actually Pfizer's best-selling product in their entire portfolio. It's not a cancer drug or a heart or cholesterol drug. It's a vaccine, around $6 billion a year in sales for Pfizer. Um, it's called Prevnar 13 because it protects against 13 types of pneumococcus or streptococcus pneumoniae. Well, there's actually more than 97 now. Not all 97 are vaccine relevant or clinically relevant, but probably 24, 25 to 30 are. So why don't we have Prevnar 25? And the reason is because it's extremely complex and difficult to manufacture these. So this is where our process, we call it bioconjugation to kind of delineate between chemical conjugation, where we can step in and help existing manufacturing channels, or exactly what you said, make products that maybe pharma's overlooking, um, as an example, Klebsiella pneumonia. It's um, pneumonia. It's, it's one of those nasty superbugs that's prevalent in hospitals. They're drug resistant. They get sick people sicker. There are no vaccines for it. Um, uh, but we don't have, there are no vaccines in clinical development for Klebsiella. Uh, why? You know, I actually, you know, I have my thoughts, but, you know, pharma's not telling us why. So we actually have a, a product in development for Klebsiella. Um, so yes, they, they can be more streamlined manufacturing. Um, that is proven. There is actually another company kind of like ours in Switzerland. Um, so it's proven that you can um, move much faster because you have uh, these things called release controls. Every time you purify a component of the vaccine, it has to be well vetted. It has to make sure it's, it is what you said it is. Um, it looks the same as it was before you purified it from all the other stuff. Um, that just takes time. Uh, Bioconjugation is much faster. Um, better is subjective, right? Um, we actually do have some studies going on, like literally right now, to compare a, a conventionally made a chemical conjugate to a bioconjugate. It's not apples to apples comparison. It's more of a a pair to apples because um, there are some slight differences differences between the vaccine we made, but it's targeting the same bacteria. So we'll get a great readout that way to show is this. Um, non-inferior is the term that a lot of people like to use in the industry because you want to show that your vaccine's not worse. We hope it's superior, right, in terms of generating an immune response, but um, we won't have those answers for four to six weeks because these, these experiments take quite a while. Christian Harding, the co-founder and CEO of Vax New Mo. So you've been able to do this without raising any investment dollars, giving away any equity, all because of grants. Yeah, and it's and I think the secrets out. SBIRs are great. Um, it's not just the NIH that gives them DOD, you know, CDC. Most of the government agencies who have a budget are congressionally mandated to to do these SBIRs or STTRs. Um, for us, they've been a lifesaver. I mean, literally. We had the idea of opening the company, myself and my co-founder. Um, we have a, a group of co-founders, but I work a lot with uh, my former postdoc advisor. His name's Mario Feldman. He's a full professor over at Wash U. Um, Mario and I had, like, we've been talking about it for a while, and we formed the company 
exclusively so that we could submit grants, right? So like the company was formed, we had no money, we had IP, right? That's, that's the key to this. You know, we had already from another academic university, the University of Alberta, where Mario was before, um, we had the IP, um, but no money. Company formed, we're really strategic at writing our grants, we won the grant, full hands, let's go. I left my academic career, um, been bouncing around from Biogenerator to the other CIC at CET building. Now I'm back here, and that's exclusively enabled this. I have two labs. We're building out our uh, capital equipment. We have an infrastructure. Uh, our first scientist full-time starts um, on Thursday, right? So if you look at our, you know, our our publication record and we've been publishing our you know our scientific achievements there are many people who have helped with this we have amazing international and 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 uh, national collaborators here but they're not employees right they're academic labs that we subcontract out to do our our um, our vaccine testing or our analytical um, types of experiments because um, we don't vax pneumo's strength is the engineering of, of that lab safety coli to make the vaccine so I can make them and then I rely currently on the expertise of other you know well-established groups to do the animal testing or um, the mass spectrometry to say yeah this vaccine is clean it's exactly what you think it is um, so we have a lot of people we subcontract but now the grants with this large one we're finally able to bring on full-time multi-year positions you know kind of unlike a lot of startups we just received a three-year one runway right we, that's we're we're very grateful so you mentioned biogenerator tell us a little bit more about what they've done so biogenerator has been um, great to me as an individual and very great to vax Numo as a company so i've worked a lot with harry Rader, um through the grants to business program so i've gone through I think all of the facets. So they have Square One program to help you know people like me who have a, I have a science background. I'm a you know stereotypical PhD kind of geek um, who knows how to you know tell E. coli to ma or make E. coli do what I want. But I don't have the strongest business background. I don't have an MBA. Harry can kind of help guide you through that process of not not getting an MBA, obviously, but help you write. Um, think about the business side of your science. And so the grants to business program has been good. I've gone through the, the coursework, the mock panels for all my grants that have been reviewed. And then Harry's also um, biogenerator supported financially, some contract grant writers um, to help us write some of the aspects of, of our phase two grants, the commercialization plan. So Veronica Redmond has been very helpful with that. So um, really all aspects and Harry's actually stepped in outside of grants and just given me some like business development advice um, while I build out my, my business team. So he's, he's done kind of a lot for us. And finally, talking with Christian Harding, the co-founder and CEO of Vax New Mo, not directly involved with coronavirus or COVID-19 and work with bacteria as opposed to viruses. But generally, when it comes to vaccines, people are thinking a lot about them right now. We're waiting for the coronavirus vaccine to be developed. And so Christian gives us just some background on what it takes to create a vaccine. Yeah, so for I'm not a virologist, right? Those are, you know, viruses and bacteria are like, so different, but my two cents, um, a lot of work. People, actually today it was announced Moderna, they're uh, a really trendy 
innovative company developing vaccines using something called mRNA, messenger RNA. It's kind of a first in its class. And they just announced today that they have a, a batch of uh, a prototype vaccine to be tested against COVID-19. Um, it was shipped to Washington, and they're enrolling in the phase one. So it's a safety trial right now. So um, what it takes, I think, People don't want to hear this, but it takes a lot of money and a lot of expertise. There's a reason we have the FDA in place to make sure that we just don't inject an, uns inject an, you know, an unsafe product into a human. There's a process. And pharma and biotech companies did not set that process up. It's the U.S. government, the FDA. So we have this kind of long-winded process that's deliberately set up. So it'll take a lot of smart people that are, are working on it. Moderna is one example. Um, the NIH is another one they've dumped in, the National Institutes of Health. They're, they're actually funding uh, the development of, um, I think, some of these, of these early vaccine trials for the coronavirus. Um, so a lot of collaboration is, 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 is key. So um, to be determined, I, you know, I have no idea what to expect. But people should also be thinking about flu, influenza. You know, it's killed around 16,000 people this year alone in the U.S., so let's not forget about other nasty bugs and, and viruses that are already out there wreaking havoc. So um, something to think about. Thanks for the time. Christian Harding, the co-founder and CEO of Vax Numo. And up next, right after the break, we'll uh, talk about how Uber drivers and Lyft drivers can interact and chat with each other. We're going to hear about driver chatter. Stick around. Welcome back to Nothing Impossible on St. Louis's News Radio, KMOX. Well, there's a new app if you're involved in the gig economy to help you get a handle on the best places to go to make money, what the other drivers are up to. It's called Driver Chatter. And let's bring in Vivek Shaw, who's the founder of this app. Thank you so much for joining us, Vivek. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Vivek, tell us a little bit about what the, what the app does and why you created it. So I have been an Uber and Lyft driver for the last one whole year, and I created this app four weeks ago, launched it. Um, and the reason why I created it was because I wanted to chat with other people. I wanted to know other people's perspective, how they're being paid, how they're being treated. And I have questions from day to day. I live basically live in Chicago, and the only place where I can talk to people would be at the O'Hare Airport. And people actually didn't want to get out of their cars. People would be on their phones. But people did, like, about get out of my car and wanted to talk to an Uber driver, then he would definitely talk to me. But that would only answer my basic questions. Um, but people did actually want to talk to each other, and that's why I created this mobile app. We can talk about pay, unionization, strikes, um, um, prime time, surge at prices, to a wide variety of things. So it almost sounds like a, uh, almost like a Slack channel, but for Uber drivers and Lyft drivers specifically. Definitely, yeah. You can call it a Slack channel or a Discord channel. <laughs> <laughs> and how's the response been? So I launched it in Chicago, which is my hometown, and the response has been phenomenal. Um, I tried to market it over a two-day weekend as soon as it launched, and over 200 people signed up, and they were talking about just about anything. Um, they're talking about pay. They're talking about, oh, here, wait times, how long it's going to be before they actually get out of the uh, the queue, like all the Uber and Lyft drivers have to enter a virtual queue once they enter the waiting lot at O'Hare Airport. Um, but it also depends on what the demand is as far as passengers go. And that can actually determine like how soon, how quick you're going to get a ride. And also when you get a ride, it could actually take um, anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes. And I've actually, it's actually taken me 30 minutes just to get out of the traffic from the waiting lot. 
um, that's always been a big issue. So we have to calculate that in. And that was the reason, one of the reasons why I was so frustrated. And I want to check with somebody beforehand, hey, you know, how, how long is the wait time before I actually even go to the O'Hare airport? Because we don't get paid for just waiting around. And we're just wasting like uh, half an hour, 45 minutes. Sometimes I've even wasted two hours just sitting at the waiting lot. That's just dead time, not making any money. Yeah, Vivek, what are some of the other, you know, people might order a Lyft or an Uber or meal on Postmates or what have you. But, uh, you know, for for those who are in the gig economy, you're independent contractors. You are deciding, I am going to go to O'Hare or downtown or to this event to try to get customers. You know, the pay can can change. We've talked about the challenges the gig economy workers face. And so what kind of questions or what kind of concerns or, you know, how has this become a utility for those challenges that are faced in this industry? I think people need information. Mm-hmm. And Uber and Lyft, they don't provide us with much details. It actually varies from city to city. Um, Los Angeles, they just, uh, well, California has a new law, which actually requires all Uber and Lyft drivers to be employees, although Uber and Lyft are fighting you, which is a whole different issue. But in, uh, you know, at least in Missouri and uh, Illinois, um, their Uber and Lyft drivers are still independent contractors. Um, and while I was in Chicago, Uber would only give me, you know, the duration of the, of the trip. That was it. Um, it wouldn't tell me what the destination is going to be. If I'm headed to one particular location, then I wouldn't be able to catch rides in that in that direction unless there's a feature called destination feature with Uber. Same thing with Lyft. Um, but it, it doesn't work 100% solid. But we need more information. Um, and I think when we chat with each other, when we, let, when we give each other a heads up, um, this app can actually solve a lot of that issue. Um, I was uh, at a... Uh, at a music festival, dropping a passenger off, and a cop handing me a ticket, handing me a ticket, saying that you cannot drop off passengers at this particular um, uh, intersection. There were no signs anywhere posted, but when I went to a hearing, um, I found out that there were more than a hundred Uber and Lyft drivers that are actually given that same citation. But had I simply chatted with somebody, if I had I posted that message right then and there, that hey, cop is giving out. Uh, tickets at this particular intersection, then a lot of other people would have avoided that intersection drop being dropped off. All right. Well, if you're within the uh, the bandwidth and the mass listening power of KMOX, and also as you listen to this online via podcast, make sure you check out Driver Chatter. And Vivek, thanks for joining us. We want to get people sharing more information so they can thrive in the gig economy. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. And we'll be back next week with more Nothing Impossible. Michael, we'll see you next week. See you later. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.